Our sermon today is taken from Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 to 25. This is the word of God. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to the people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Thus says the Lord. Whoa. Wow. All right. Let's pray. <laughs> Father in heaven, who are we, Lord, that you even accept our worship from our vain mouths? Who are we, O Lord, that we can come before your throne and ask of you, and that you speak to us, Lord, through your word, and have given us your word to instruct us unto salvation. Pray, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, that you may guide us in learning about your word. You may write it in our hearts, that we may come to see your beauty, to gaze upon your beauty in your temple. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So where are you, God? This is a question that my heart is tempted to ask when I'm going through a particularly difficult season of life. When it seems like I have a lot of problems and a lot of things are hurting me. And when the season does not look like it's ending anytime soon, I might even ask, who are you, God? I thought that you loved me. I thought that you were good, that you want my best life now. If it gets so bad, I might even go, are you even there? And if I'm long enough in that place, I might answer my own question and say, no, you're not. And even if you are, you don't care. So the passage that we're learning from today is the next episode in the story of Israel, God's Old Testament people who has become slaves in the land of Egypt, right? Since the church is God's New Testament people, and God does not change, hopefully by God's grace, we can learn about how God works to our most difficult times. There are three parts to the passage, and we can learn at least three things from it. First, Israel, God's people who are stuck in their struggle. 
2. Moses, God's servant, who he prepares through the struggle. And 3. The Lord, God who commits to our struggle. To really appreciate the narrative and grasp the importance of what's going on with Israel in our passage, we need to remind ourselves of who the nation of Israel is. They are Abraham's descendants, who God says that all nations will be blessed through. They were promised a land of their own. And they were also supposed to be as numerous of the stars in the sky and of the sands of the seashore. But look at where they are now, right? Their situation is exactly the opposite, it seems like, of what God said he would do to them. They're not a nation of blessing, but they're a nation oppressed and under slavery, and they've been there for 400 years. They're living as foreigners and outcasts in a land that's not their own. And now they can't even multiply because, if you remember from the previous week, that the Hebrew boys were being thrown into the Nile, right? At this point, either God was not keeping his promise to Israel or that God's people has messed up to the point that God has changed their minds about them. If you recall about how Israel got into this position, how they got to Egypt, they got there because of a famine. A famine in the Old Testament is a sign of when God does not have favor upon his people. When Israel would break, his, break their covenant with God, right, God would send a famine or an oppressive nation to punish them. If we read through the book of Genesis, we will know that the descendants of Abraham, through whom all nations will be blessed, were thoroughly sinful. Jacob cheated his father-in-law off his sheep. Jacob's children sold their own brother into slavery. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, slept with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi murdered an entire city, took their women and children as slaves, and plundered their livestock. Right. The nation of Israel were not the model nation. So they were in exile in Egypt, or the, their descendants were in exile in Egypt because of the sins of their ancestors. We know from Acts 7 also that when Moses came and killed the Egyptian in our story, he expected that God's people would understand that God had sent Moses to save them. But they didn't. And in fact, when he came to them the next day, they rejected him. So Israel was enslaved, and it, they did not even have a notion or a concept of freedom, right? They did not want to be free. Freedom seems like just a pipe dream. So just like Israel, God's people today were also once slaves. But our captors are not this identifiable thing like the Egyptians. But Paul teaches us in Romans 6, 15 and following, that before Christ frees us, we are slaves to sin. But how are we enslaved, you might ask? I'll give you at least three ways. First, sin enslaves us by preventing us from freely worshiping God and enjoying his fellowship. After a particularly sinful week, or when I've been particularly hurt by someone's sin, Sometimes I have to drag myself to church. I really don't feel like going. No matter how much I try, the words of the songs and the hymns that are, that are sung seem like wishful thinking. 
when I confess my sin, I'm sorry that I did them, but there's no genuine anguish over my sin. When I hear the preached word, it like it goes in one ear, out the other. And when I pray, I really feel like talking to myself. And church, in these days, on these days, become just more of a social thing, right? You meet people, say happy Sunday, you leave. But on the other hand, I know of a time when the Holy Spirit has pierced my heart through the words of the song, when they seem so real to me and they've given me hope. And I can remember when God has spoken to me through the word that is preached. And I have seen and experienced God answer my prayers. But in my sinful moments and in times when sin has hurt me the most, my heart just cannot seem to bring myself to properly worship Him. Now, it doesn't mean that when I'm sinful or when people have sinned against us, that God stopped loving us and is refusing to give us His grace, right? Your perception of who God is just changes because you're aware that you wronged Him, right? I was teaching at a school last year. It is so easy to know if your kids has done something wrong, right? Suddenly, they act differently to you, right? So I would like go up to this kid, when he's done something wrong, he would look stare at me. I'm like, I'm like saying, hello, mister. <laughs> but then usually, he'd be like, hey, mister, how are you? Give me a test later, yeah. But why? Why do, why do we see God differently when God is the same, right? If we are in Christ and we know that he loves us and he died for us, why can't we just rest in this fact and enjoy God's presence? Our sin messes with our heads, messes with our hearts. And as far as and as long as we are on this earth, though our faithful walk with Christ would make these moments of spiritual dryness fewer and further between, and we'll be able to be, to be more aware of God's grace as we mature, we won't experience the fullness of God's glory until we leave this cursed world. There will always be those moments when it seems like worship is, is just a motion, just a dance that we do. Second, sin enslaves us by preventing us from seeing our fellow human beings as an image of God. In this cursed and sinful creation, right, fear and anxiety is considered a normal thing. But if we think about it, Fear and anxiety only exists because sin does. We think it's normal and smart to distrust people to a certain extent. For example, when you have a worker or a stranger working at your house, fixing your air conditioning, your toilet, whatever, it's normal for you to think or suspect that he might steal something, right? So what do you do? You have someone that you trust there to watch over the place to deter him from sinning against you. You need to protect yourself. It's also normal for you to worry about others taking advantage of you if you help them. We are afraid to invite hurting and needy people into our lives because of the real possibility that they might harm us and sin against us. Uh, I have a friend who told me a story about 
when he was giving out uh, some work, right? He, he was inviting some disadvantaged people into his house um, for work so that they could have some, some sort of income just for one day. And during this time, after the day, he paid them. He found that his stuff was missing. It was nothing major, nothing big. He could afford to lose it. He didn't go bankrupt because he lost it. But that small act of sin made him reluctant or, or at least gave him some sort of hesitance, right, to fully and generously give to these people, to this person. That's what sin does for us. It messes with our perception of who humanity is, right? And, and that's not how God designed humans. Humans were made in the image of God. When we see humans, when we see images of God, we should be moved to glorify the Creator. We should move to give it the dignity that it deserves. And the image of God should reflect God's character. But instead, when we encounter images of God that we don't know, we need to protect ourselves from them. We fear that we might be sinned against by them. But we need to. Why? Because the image of God has fallen. Okay, one more. In fact, we are so enslaved by the effects of our sin that the suffering we experience from it is considered natural. There are just some simply unpleasant facts about the human experience that we just need to endure. Childbearing is a painful experience. I wouldn't know this for sure, but I've heard. <laughs> but I know from talking to my friends and from my parents that financially, raising a child, especially in this city, in this country, costs you a lot of money. And a lot of money requires a lot of work and a lot of suffering. Secondly, that there will be conflict between husband and wives. Right? I'm, I'm not yet married, so I don't know this for sure, but statistically in the US, so I've read that the divorce, divorce rate, rate is like 50%. There's like a 50-50 chance when you get married, your marriage, your marriage is not gonna last. And here it's a little lower. But I would imagine if divorce was socially more acceptable, that it might be more prevalent than we think. Relationships are hard. Conflicts happen, right? We must work hard just to survive and to provide for our families. We all know here, I'm sure, how hard it is to make money and to provide for our families the things that they need in order for them to survive, beyond just money, time, affection, care. And it just doesn't seem like there's enough. We have to break our backs to do this. Why? Another thing, nature is often working against us. And we often have to destroy or harm them to survive, natural disasters and stuff like that. As I was a kid, when I was a kid, one of the things that made me doubt the existence of God is the existence of mosquitoes. Why would God create such horrible creatures that make us sick and make us itchy if he really loves us? Why can't God just take away all the mosquitoes if he's good? The Bible gives you an answer. Creation has fallen. There is sin. 
creation is now against you. And our bodies, lastly, are deteriorating over time and we will eventually die. Those of us over the age of 25 will know this, that working out right now feels differently than working out three years ago, right? And if you watch sports, you will know that LeBron James 2009 and LeBron James 2019 are not the same. Sorry, Laker fans, okay? And I would dare to say that these facts, the fact that these facts are true controls much of our lives. We plan our lives around them so that the suffering that they cause is minimized. And because everyone ex like experiences some fear and anxiety and pain because of the things that I mentioned, we just think that we just have to suffer these things and then die someday. But this is not a biblical worldview. If we study Genesis 1 to 3, we know that the exact opposite things are true. We're meant to fill the earth. Childbearing is something that is an obedience to God, right? There's only supposed to be profound love and unity between husband and wife. Our work is meant to spread all of God's glory to creation, not just to survive. Nature was never something that was intended to harm us, but it was something that we were meant to cultivate for God's glory. And after all this, God is going to give us the fruit of the tree of life so that he can be with us forever. How far has humanity fallen from where God intended it to be? So like Israel, God intended every single human being for greater things. But also like Israel, our own sin and the sin of those before us has cursed us into living the slaves of sin. And like Israel, we were born into this slavery. And outside of God, we have no hope for freedom. So Israel, back to Israel, needed a savior. Someone to show them the way. Moses thought that he could be this, that savior. So he shows up and kills the Egyptian. But then they rejected him. So think about this though. Can you blame them? Interesting that in verse 14, it is specified that the one who is harming the Israelite was the one in sin. We see that the Israelite who was violent like the Egyptian was the one who was struck down like the Egyptian. Even when Moses came to him trying to make peace, right? We live in a selfish, ruthless, and graceless world. And to thrive in it, we must be like this world. Likewise, selfish, ruthless, and graceless. And eventually, once we thrive in this world, we might feel comfortable living in the world. And we might actually believe that this is freedom. Example, money. We live in a thoroughly consumeristic and materialistic culture, thinking that money can purchase you your freedom. Money can free you from hunger. Money will free you from discomfort. Money will afford you servants who will free you from doing the work that you feel is beneath you or you're not particularly fond of doing. Money 
will even buy you that relationship that you might want. And money now can buy you the face that you've always wanted. Okay? But is that really happiness? Does having enough money, does having all of those things truly free you? Isn't it true that the more money you have, the more people try to take it away from you? The more you have to obsess about keeping it? The more you have to obsess about making it? It's like the great American philosopher, Christopher Wallace says, the more money we come across, the more problems we see. Money does not gain you freedom. It only makes your slavery seems more bearable and makes the chains of your sin seem lighter, right? So when the message of Christianity tells us that we can be free from the effects and the bondage of our sin, from the anxiety and fear and suffering that we have, but we have to leave that which has given us comfort, we have to leave the world and the ways of the world that we know, Christianity can just seem like another oppressive and graceless thing trying to control us. We know that A makes me happy, right? It's a relationship, item, job, whatever. If it doesn't please the Lord, we have to leave it or else we'll never be free from our sin. Of course, that seems completely graceless, telling us just to make ourselves suffer needlessly for something that might make us happy. If we don't have an understanding of our chains, it is hard for us to see Christianity as a liberator, right? But on the other hand, Moses tried to show them salvation in the wrong way. He was violent to the Egyptian who was violent. So no wonder that his Hebrew brothers thought that he was no different to the Egyptians. I don't know if you notice the same thing, but if you ask people, why don't you go to church? The most common reason why they tell me is that they are turned off by the message of the church because they were hurt by the church in some way. They felt judged by the church. Or the church has claimed to be something different and better than what the world is. But it turns out, surprise, surprise, church is full of sinners and they are exactly the same. Okay. An extreme example of this. I don't know if you've heard of the Westboro Baptist Church. They would picket LGBTQ plus rallies with signs saying God hates uh, fags, right? It's horrible. And many have experienced something maybe more subtle, but just as hurtful. Where some of us Christians, well-intentioned as we may be, right, has resorted to forcing people to behave like we do or to think like we do. And if they don't, we isolate and shame them. Make them known that they are sinners. Is this the way Jesus showed us salvation for our sins? 
Christians, our message is one of grace. For some of us, our sins might be more visible. Drunkenness, violence, sexual sin, etc. For others, they might be more subtle and hidden. Pride, envy, greed, dishonesty. But we are sinful nonetheless. And both of us are deserving of God's judgment. And we equally need grace. And the fact that we don't sin as badly as other people or our lives don't seem as affected by sin is because of God's grace alone. You don't know their lives. You don't know what they've been through. We don't know how they got this way. And who are we to say that if we were in the same exact place that we would do any differently than them? It is extremely prideful for us to think that because the fact that we can resist our sin is the work of God and his grace alone. And of course, Jesus did not show salvation in this way. He showed that being free is not by gain, by having many servants, but by being a servant. Jesus showed that fulfillment is not gained by keeping all to yourself, but giving freely of all yourself. And Jesus showed that the power of our salvation is not found in him or anyone else taking a life, but by he himself giving his life. Be like Christ. Show to the world, Christians, that salvation, the way to salvation, is the way of the cross. Don't be like Moses and try to save people by your own might and power. Point two. Moses. So Israel was in slavery and they needed a slave savior. And here comes this Moses guy trying to be a hero, right? And he, and he tried to kill this Egyptian. And Israel rejected him and he went into the desert as a criminal. Then in chapter 3, we see God calling Moses back into Egypt in the burning bush story. So what is the point of this bit in between? Right? He could, could have easily gone, Moses was exiled, then 40 years later, God called Moses back. But God gave us this narrative of Moses in the desert. Why? Two things that we can highlight from here. Right? That one, Moses was a servant that he was uniquely called for his task, but two, God still had to prepare him. We know from um, the passage before that Moses was a privileged man. He was spared of the fate that befell every other Israelite boy. Right? He, he wasn't thrown into the Nile. He did not die in the waters of the Nile, but he was saved on the ark. He was not raised in the bondage of slavery. But he was brought up, educated in the courts of the king. He was raised by the princess of Egypt and was called a son. But his mother and his sister still raised him so that he, can, he never forgot his roots. And so he can see and empathize in the suffering of Israel and had compassion for his people. So he felt that God was calling him to be the way that his people was going to be saved. He was right. 
But Moses showed us that he was not ready to answer the calling, and God had to send him to the wilderness to prepare him for the ministry that he's called to. We see from the story of Moses that he had the raw instincts of a savior. He could not bear to see his own people being oppressed. He could not bear to see his people oppressing each other. And we see in verse 16 of our passage that he could not bear seeing the women being harassed by the shepherds. And if you've read Genesis, right, this encounter of Moses in the watering hole, meeting some women, was also where Jacob and Isaac met their wives. Apparently the well was where all the ladies were at in ancient Israel. But there is a hint here that God is continuing the story of Abraham's family. And so Moses, having the savior instincts that he had, had to take action. But God called Moses where he is, with who he is, but not as he is. God has given him privileges and a passion that puts him in a unique position to serve God in a special way. But God still lacked the character and experience that is necessary for what God wanted him to do. We see from the story of Moses that Moses lacked the wisdom, patience, and humility to fulfill his calling. He acted foolishly. His emotions got the better of him. He got caught in the moment, and he killed someone. He did not wait patiently on the Lord to show him how and when to act, but instead he pridefully took matters into his own hands and look where that put him, in the wilderness. But we also have to keep in mind that God had other plans for Moses. God did want to free Israel, as we will see in Exodus. But God wanted Israel to know for sure that it was not the might of Moses that saved Israel but it was God himself. And Moses could never have imagined what God had in store for him. Moses was not only supposed to bring Israel out of Egypt, but also to bring to Israel God's law, his rule, and also the tabernacle, God's tent, where God's presence would be with his people. So God had to school him so that he could serve the Lord well, because God did not call Moses because he was equipped, but God equipped Moses for that to which he has called Moses. So we see from the passage that in order to equip Moses, God gave Moses three things. A mentor, a family, and a job. Number one, God gave Moses a mentor. We see that Moses ended up in the household of this guy called Rule. Interestingly, in the next chapter and throughout the rest of the Bible, he was no longer called Rule, but Jethro. Now his name Rule means in Hebrew, friend of God. We also know that this Rule guy, he's a Midianite. And if we look back to Genesis 25, we know that Midian is actually one of the sons of Abraham. Not from Sarah, not from Hagar, but from another wife, Keturah. So, it is possible that this rule guy is still a worshiper 
of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And secondly, about this rural guy, he is described here as a priest. Now, for the ancient Israelite, this is a very important and interesting fact. Because in ancient Israel, the priests were from the tribe of Levi, the tribe of Moses. And at this point in Israel's history, God had not told Moses how to be a priest and what it means to be a priest. This comes later in Exodus 25 to 31. So we know that Rule could not have been a priest of some pagan god because Moses married his daughter and he's called a friend of God very intentionally here. And so Moses had learned how to be a priest or have at least witnessed how to be a priest from this rule guy. So Moses had to be taken out of Egypt where the people of God were in such slavery that he could not worship God. And he met friend of God who was a priest. And Moses will then teach his brother Aaron and his entire tribe to be a tribe of priests. So the time he spent with rule allowed him to witness and experience what being a priest of the Lord would look like. So that when God finally gave Moses the task of establishing the Israel's priesthood, it is not some completely foreign concept, nor was it based on the worship of any pagan god. God prepared him. Secondly, God gave Moses a family. In this time, God also blessed Moses with a wife and kids. I wish I can speak about this point with more authority and conviction. I can't, because unfortunately, I'm not married. But we see, Paul teaches in 1 Timothy, that a qualification of an elder to be a shepherd and overseer of God's church, of God's flock, one must ideally be a husband of one wife. And also, if this is not your first time in CCC, and you've heard Tezar preach before, you would know that the majority of his illustrations come from his experiences with Elena and Liam, and Tati, and his family. His marriage and kids has taught him many things about the Lord. It has made alive the, the experiences that the scriptures has taught him. And it has shaped him, Tezar, into the pastor that we see today. Marriage is supposed to be a sanctifying experience that prepares you to love the larger family of God through learning how to love your family. Third, God gave Moses a job. We know in chapter 3 that what Moses had to do in Rule's household was to tend to his sheep. Moses became a shepherd. It's interesting, if you look back in the passage, that after Moses saves his wife, his wife and, his sister, and her sisters from the shepherds, that they called Moses the Egyptian to rule. And then Moses ended up becoming a shepherd. Why is this important? Genesis 46, 34 says, For all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Remember, Moses was raised in the household of Pharaoh 
the king of Egypt. And now he is something that is detestable to his culture. What is the point? That God did not only want to take Moses out of Egypt, but God wanted to take Egypt out of Moses. Right? Moses fell. Like, it's like he was a CEO, and then the next day, he was homeless. He became what to be someone who would be beneath what he thought he could be. God had to humble him so that God could take away the Egyptianness in Moses, that he could forget the Egyptian notions of success, the Egyptian ways of doing things, so that he can fully submit himself and humble himself to serve the Lord of Israel, the true God. And so Moses spent 40 years in the desert as a shepherd, right? If you look at Moses' story from an Egyptian perspective, it looks like he's a complete loser, right? He lost everything. He, he went rock bottom. And God didn't leave him there just only for a little bit, for 40 years. Now, I'm going to speak of something that I think is prevalent in this culture, right? That in this culture, age is a very sensitive and important thing. There is a timeline that you need to follow that by age 30, for example, if you're a man, you should be ideally married, you should have a pretty well-paying job, enough money to have a house and two kids. My mom, I'm officially this year going to be in my late 20s, and my mom's already like, hey, you know Tante's whatever daughter? She's nice. <laughs> no, mom, all right? And if you don't fulfill or, you know, complete your life within that timeline, they make you feel like a failure. For women, you can tell me if I'm wrong. But it seems like if you're getting near the age of 30 and you're not married or on the way to marriage, people start asking you about it. Do you have a boyfriend? Are you engaged? You don't have a boyfriend? Oh. You want me to introduce you to someone? As if it's like some problem that you need to solve immediately, right? And maybe because we're so fixated on this timeline, you start doubting your own value and thinking that there's something wrong with you, that you can't complete these tasks in the culturally accepted frame of time. That even maybe you might think that God doesn't, didn't bless you as much as he's blessed others or he doesn't love you enough. Now, there's nothing wrong with that timeline, and if you fulfill that timeline, good for you. But it becomes sinful when that timeline becomes a measure of your self-worth and a measure of the degree to which God loves you. Moses was 80 when God called him back, when his ministry began. And God had much, much more in front of Moses at age 80. After this process, after his 40 years in the wilderness, what did Moses become? He was this frail, old 80-year-old man who can stand before the most powerful man in the world and say, let my people go. He was someone 
who was so prideful that he had to take action himself to be the person who the Bible says was the meekest and humblest man that ever lived. He was the guy who would do, who would take things into his own hands to kill the Egyptian. To when Exodus 33, right, when God was speaking to Moses, Moses said to him, if your presence does not go, I will not go. That word, that presence, your presence in Hebrew, it's Emmanu, right? Where we get Emmanuel. It's like he's saying, if Jesus is not there, I don't want to go. That's where I want to be, right? And God can lead us there. And it is a process. Our lives are completely dependent on God. And God has a process for it. And of course... Jesus didn't just plop down from heaven as an adult and went straight to the cross and died for our sins and was raised. No, he had to be born into human flesh. He had to feel pain, fear, and anxiety like every one of us did. He had to be tempted. But after all that, he remained faithful doing only what the fathers tell, told him. And because of that process, he did not stay dead but he was raised to glorious life. And now he is in the heavens, crowned king of the creation, preparing a place for us, waiting for us to come home. So Christian, let's do a bit of introspection. We are called Christians, if you're a Christian, I'm talking to you, to be God's servant like Moses. Maybe our calling is not as spectacular or glamorous like Moses, but our lives are still called to him. So let me give you, throw out some questions for introspection. How has God privileged you? What kind of blessings and gifts that God give, gave you that he didn't give other people? Right? How has that put you in a position to serve God in a unique way? Who are you in a position to bless? What kind of people? What kind of need are you able to meet? because of where God put you. Secondly, what kind of things are you passionate about? What kind of things anger you? What would you change about the world? What needs are you passionate about, meaning, about meeting? Living in this sinful world should break our hearts. And that heartbreak should motivate us to be salt and light in the world. You're not the savior. You're, we're not gonna be the ones who save the world. But nonetheless, through us, God is calling us to show his goodness in the hopes that some may come to worship him. Thirdly, what kind of tragedies, experiences, successes that God has allowed you to have in your life? What kind of people, which relationships that God put you in and take you out? Who has God led you to? Who has the most influence in your life? Again, God is sovereign over these things. These things are not by accident. And if you're called, if you're a Christian and you say that Jesus died for you, then you are called to be prepared and sanctified through this process for his glory, for his ministry. Okay, point three. The Lord. 
Let's talk about the Lord. Okay, in verse 23, it seems like we are taken out of the main action of the text. and We're given an overview of what's been going on behind the scenes. And we see that at some point in the story, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, died. And as we know from political transitions, that there is a kind of semblance of hope. We saw this in the last election, right? People thought things could change when leaders change. So Israel, because Pharaoh died, cried out to, the, to God when there seemed to be hope. And we can read in this text that God did four things. God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. Now, there are two ways of reading the passage. I'll call one the open theist way, and I'll call the other the reformed way. The open theist way goes like this. Israel called, Lord. God's like, huh? And then God turned, and he's like, he remembered. Right, I did promise that thing that one time to those guys. Then God saw. God saw. Oh, that's terrible. Okay, now I know what I have to do. Does that seem like the biblical God? As if he's bound by some kind of human circumstances? As if, as if he's just waiting for the opportunity because now it's not a good time for him to act? If we take the whole of the Bible into account, we see that this is not the God that we worship. And so this is the reform view, and we'll see if this makes more sense to you. God heard. It's not like God wasn't listening and he needed to grab his attention, but hearing is a response to their crying out. God had to change their circumstances so that, that they would cry and ask the right person for help. God didn't want it, there to be any misunderstanding, that it was not an accident, it was not Moses or any other man who saved them, but the Lord was their helper, the maker of heaven and earth. And he was about to shake heaven and earth in Egypt to show them just that. God remembered. It's not like God forgot, right, the covenant that he made. But the Bible is trying to say that the covenant that he made was the basis for his loving and saving action. I was at a workshop a couple of weeks ago, and um, there was this exercise that we had to do. It was about um, hospital ministry. And basically, we had to imagine ourselves in situations, right? And we were supposed to write or think about what we would say in a letter that would be opened one day, one year after we died, and who would open it? And there was this guy, Philip, his name, and he, he was in tears telling us a story. He's like, of course, my wife would be the one opening it. And on this letter, I would tell her, I would write down how we met and how we got together. It's not like the wife would have ever forgotten how they met. But this remembrance caused her to have this loving and affectionate effect. Right? There was an effect caused by the remembrance. Not, not that it was something that was forgotten, but it became a basis became the grounds for something that was about to happen. God, when remembering his covenant, 
was using something that he himself did. God initiated the covenant with Abraham, remember, as the reason for his love and salvation. That's why it's grace. God saw. It's not like God was looking away for a moment. But whenever it says that God sees something, it always means that God is going to do something afterwards. It's a clue that God is about to take action. And lastly, God knew. It's not like God just learned something new. But knowing in the Bible communicates a deep and intimate unity, right? Like Adam knew Eve. Abraham knew his wife and they conceived a child. So what does that mean that God knew? That God lovingly, deeply committed and united himself to Israel's situation as a husband and wife commits to each other. God didn't gain, just gain some fact. It was a decisive action for God to save Israel. And we know that God committed himself to our situation. He committed himself to our cursed flesh, felt all the pain and misery, and committed himself to the Father's will up on that cross so that we can have salvation from him. Jesus totally committed himself to us. So where is God when things are going badly, when a loved one has died, when there is a relationship that you've lost, when you have heartbreak, when you don't think that you're going to have enough financially, or when you've made such an awful mistake that you don't think you can ever take back. What is God doing? Where is God? He's saying to you, I died for you. There is salvation for you. He says, don't you worry, child. Heaven has a place for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, truly we are unworthy of your love and your grace. We thank you, Father, that you have committed yourself to us and you've adopted us as sons and daughters. Teach us, Lord, to quiet our souls and wait for you, for your salvation has come and we just need to be aware of it. In your mercy, Lord, we pray. Amen.